like for us to focus our thoughts and our minds on what the Lord would have us to receive from His Word. I was listening to a preacher of some note in our country a few years ago. He was talking about a leadership principle. He said that sometimes there are tensions that have to be managed. And then there are times that tensions must be resolved. And his point was that the health of any organization is determined by having the wisdom in the leadership to know the difference. There are some tensions that if you don't resolve, they're just going to wreak havoc on the people. They must be resolved. They have to be dealt with, usually swiftly. And then there are tensions that if you deal with them swiftly, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're going to cause more problems. Those are tensions to be managed. Now, in a different and parallel sense, we deal with a tension in our minds this morning in this text that we need to, to manage. We can't resolve it. It's about our view of God. Now, the problem does not lie with God. It's not as if God is unknowable or even that he hasn't communicated himself to us by his word. The problem lies in, in our sin-stricken condition, with our proneness to wonder, the problem lies in our ability to hold in tension what seems to be two truths that we don't hold in tension very well. To put it bluntly, it's the idea of a, of a servant leader, uh, the idea of a, of a priest king, uh, the, the idea of um, truth and love. There's no necessary separation between the attributes of God. He's altogether perfect. But in our humanity and our sin-stricken state, we struggle to hold things in tensions, in tension that needs, to be, that needs to be managed instead of resolved. And so surely we struggle with tensions that are true because of our ability to perceive Today, as we look at this text, we're going to see the Son in glory. We're going to see how He gives us a job in verses 9 through 11. We're going to see how He gives us a standard in verses 12 through 16. And we're going to see how He gives us a comfort in verses 17 through 20. The Son in glory gives us a job, a general job, if you're a note-taker, the Son in glory gives us a, a general job, verses 9 through 11. A just standard, verses 12 through 16. And a genuine comfort, verses 17 through 20. Let's hear the reading of God's word. And out of respect for it, let's stand to our feet. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom... And the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, 
that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, and the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace into the hearers. You may be seated. One principle in studying the Bible is to make the main things the plain things, and the plain things the main things. When you look at verse 20, you see very clearly that the, the seven stars are exposed as angels or messengers to the churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches that hold up the light. So lampstand, if you're taking notes in your little journals or your notepads, and lampstands equal churches, and stars equals angels or messengers. And for reasons I hope to explain more in the weeks ahead as we get into the seven letters to the churches, I take the word angeloi or angel to mean messenger, and messenger to mean pastoral emissary, carrying the letter to the churches. So I think of it as a, perhaps like a senior pastor in a church to each of these seven churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And while we're talking about those seven churches, just from the onset here, it would have formed geographically kind of like a, like a horseshoe in Asia Minor. And in being a horseshoe, uh, it would have been a courier's route to carry circularly this open letter to the churches. And so it was for the churches, and there was, there was a, a historical context by which these words were written. We don't have to make mysterious things that are plain. Western Turkey today was Asia Minor then, and there were seven cities, larger cities, probably wasn't all the, certainly wasn't all the cities and wasn't all the churches that were in existence in that time, but it was representative seven churches, the number of completion, seven, seven-day week. Seven is a number that means perfection or completion. And the letter would have been carried to complete all the churches, completely to all the churches, a complete message for all of the churches. So these seven churches are now listed for the very first time, and they're going to be written to in chapters 2 and 3. It'll be interesting to see God's word not only to them and in, in their need for comfort and correction, but also to us and our need for comfort and correction. So it'll be a timely message to us as the church. As I said last week, this letter, this book is a letter as well as an apocalyptic prophecy in terms of the genre, the type of literature that it is. So it's kind of a, a hodgepodge, it's a blur, it's several things together. It's mainly apocalypse, but it is also prophecy. It's the fulfillment of all prophecy, and it's also written as a letter to churches, and that's the section that we're about to get into, but not before we see a glorious vision of the sun, and that's what we're looking at today. This sun in glory does three things. He gives us a general job, a just standard, and a genuine comfort. So first, he gives us a general job. Let me show my work on how we get there. It says in verse 9, I, John, well, pause for a second, and let's answer the question, who is John? I take it to mean that John is the apostle, the beloved disciple. The John would have been the one that wouldn't have deserted, would have been at the cross, lurking in the shadows, would have become a, a caregiver to Jesus' mother. This is John. He would have lived the longest of the apostles. Remember, what's it to you if this guy lives until lives I come back? What's it to you? That's the way the gospel of John ends. Uh, I take it to be John the Apostle, and John has apostolic status. And I think that's important. I'm going to read something to you I wrote this week in the first person. I had a, went to a workshop where a pastor told me possibly sharing about John the Apostle in the first person might be a good way to illuminate what's going on here, so I'm going to try it. I like to fish. More aptly, I was in the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee with my brother and another family who had a son our age in the area named Peter. Now that Peter, he was kind of impetuous, but let's not get into that. When I was in my early 20s, a man came on the scene that caught the attention of, well, everyone. He asked me to follow him in his work, and he changed my life. He was from our general area in Israel. He taught around the sea we fished in. His name is Jesus. I served him and even sheepishly witnessed his crucifixion. I gained a mother, Mary, as Jesus instructed from the cross. He died, but remarkably, he rose again. My friends and I met back up with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee some weeks after his crucifixion. He gave us a commission to fulfill until he returns. Jesus, my hero, our hero, ascended into heaven with a promise to return. It went well for a while. My friends and fellow apostles wrote down what they'd seen. 
The Spirit carried them along to write down what Jesus had said in the Gospels and the development of the early church in Acts and letters of instruction for the churches in the letters. And I got in and I wrote down what I recalled as well as the Spirit carried me along. I've not grown weary of serving these churches, but lately I've found it hard to. I've fallen on some hard times. Now in my 80s, the age of a grandpa, I have dim eyes and I'm hard of hearing. I find myself punished for preaching the word of God and testifying to his salvation. Evil Emperor Domitian cracked down on Christianity yet again in this Roman Empire in which we live, the dominant empire, empire of our time. My work in the church in Ephesus was stopped abruptly. One of my, fat, my fellow pastors in Pergamum was killed. Now I'm exiled to a little crescent-shaped island amongst 50 islands, 40 miles from civilization, close to these churches, but so far away that I'm hardly able to strengthen them. I'm alone. I was alone in my thoughts, laboring in the, in the rock quarries on this penitentiary Alcatraz-type island most of my days, and it was Sunday. I was gathered with a very small group of believers, somewhat privately. On this, this day of the Lord, the Lord's Day, Sunday, I was surprised. As an old man, I was surprised at what the Lord showed me. He gave me the task of putting the finishing touches on his word of Scripture by writing down what I saw, the book that you now see as the Revelation, singular, the book. Jesus, in his love for me, was made known afresh on that day, in an unassuming time on an island of Patmos. I was caught up in the Spirit. Now I want you to know, those of you that are reading what I wrote later, I don't look down on you as an inferior just because you weren't an apostle, just because that was my role to bear. Far from it. You're my brother, a fellow servant, a friend of God. We're partners in this gospel, even partners in this pain. We need each other to endure. Now all suppers are the Lord's, but there's something special about the Lord's Supper. And, and all days are the Lord's, but there's something special about the Lord's day. I saw that afresh on that day on the island of Patmos when Domitian had me exiled before Nerva, the follow-up emperor, let me out. Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead, and for Christians, reflections are in order. I was wishing to be with the fuller church on the Lord's day, the churches that I love, and instead the Lord had a plan for me in my prison. And I was able to write a letter that would be taken by a courier to the churches in that horseshoe shape to those seven churches to complete what they needed in the revelation. I am John the Apostle. Now with that little monologue, that autobiographical conceptual sketch, let's read again verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother, your partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was he there? He was there because of his teaching. He was there because of his testimony. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write, imperative verb, write what you see in a book. And an imperative verb, send it to the seven churches. Book to the churches. And then he lists the churches. Now, this is how I get to the fact that, that the Son in glory gives us a job. is because the apostle sees himself as a peer, as a brother, as a servant, as a fellow sufferer, a yoke fellow, in suffering for the cause of Christ. The reason that he is on the island is not simply because he had the title apostle. He's exiled to the penitentiary on their Alcatraz because of the fact that he stood on the word and he bore testimony to Christ. Now that is probably the most threatening thing that we can do to the governing authorities of our day. They seem to be far more bothered by authentic Christianity than they are organizational plots. Now please don't misunderstand me. In a constitutional republic, we have certain obligations as citizens, and we ought to live out those obligations. I'm not here to downplay or deny that. But if you think the king in glory does anything more than yawn and laugh at our little plans, 
Everybody will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ruler of rulers, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And he is not unaware. He is not dismayed. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. And the job that he's given you to do, regardless of the news feed, the news cycle, is the same. Witness faithfully. Faithful witness. Be a faithful witness. What does it mean to be a faithful witness? Stand on the word. Testify to Jesus. The Bible says that if we lift Jesus high, that he will draw all men unto himself. The Bible says that the way that we seek to present everyone mature in Christ is to proclaim His name. That's the message. This hour, this week, we gather together not to focus on what's horizontal, but focus on what's vertical. It's substantial. He has a plan for us. And He has a general job for you to do. I don't mean to overpress this as if this means that you're going to be an engineer or something like that. What I mean to say here is, is that in the same way that the job description given to the first Christians could get them in trouble, the job description generally given to us as Christians, they can get us in trouble. I mean, I might ask it this way. When's the last time you got in a little bit of trouble because you testified about Jesus and stood on the Word of God? I'm not advocating being prickly. Not at all. I'm simply asking, when push comes to shove... Are you willing to be put on your metaphorical island because of the job that Jesus has given to you? The Son of Man in glory gives us a job. He tells us about it in the book that was written and sent to us by the Apostle John through the courier to the churches and now extant today. This job that he has given us is for every single believer. It's for man, woman, boy, girl, every believer in Christ is to trust the word of the Lord and to testify to the good grace of Jesus Christ, come what may. Now, this does not diminish the roles that we have in the Lord's church. In fact, we ought to embrace the roles that the Lord gives us. I will never be an apostle. I don't need to be. Women, you will never be a man. You don't need to be. Men, you'll never be a woman. You don't need to be. The role relationship that the Lord gives us is for our good and for His glory. And we buck against it to our own peril. He calls us brothers and sisters. He puts the accent in the right place. Not on the differences of our roles, but the beauty of God's design as we serve Him. You're missing nothing to take your cues from the Word of God. Nothing. You're gaining everything. This Word is for you. It's for me. And He didn't just save you to sit you. He saved you to put you sent out as His people, His ambassadors, to bear His message. No matter what your job is out in the world, you have a job as a Christian. You have a job in your home. You have a job in this church to come worship Jesus. You have a job to do generally, and that is everywhere you go to carry Christ. Everywhere. Come what may, even if it puts you on an island too, metaphorically speaking. I must move along in the interest of time. So much could be said. But let's look at verse 12 now and following. Our second point in today's sermon is the Son in glory not only gives us a job, but He gives us a just standard. He gives us a just standard. Now, when we look at these verses... What we see is a beautiful picture of the Son in glory. Is, let's refresh, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Remember I already told you this signifies the churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Let's just pause there before we get into how he's clothed and, and what he looks like and the imagery of it all. This son gives us a just standard. I want to share with you something that is not original to me. I want to share with you something that was, um, was shared by Pastor Doug O'Donnell out of western Chicago, Illinois. He's a wonderful preacher. I commend his, his sermons to you. Uh, he is a Presbyterian, but we won't hold that against him. Here's what he said. He said, if you visit a church, a different church, say like when you're on vacation, 
I wonder what kind of Jesus you will encounter. He said, it might actually be difficult to predict. He said, would it be, and he goes through this list of nine things, would it be the Jesus blended in with the world religions? Would it be the Jesus of Muhammad, which said Jesus was a simple prophet? Would it be the Jesus like Gandhi in Hinduism? Was Jesus a wonderful moral teacher? Would it be the Jesus of the cults, the Jesus of Joseph Smith or David Koresh, the Jesus of our popular Jesus authors like Anne Rice or Dan Brown? How about the Jesus of pop culture, of the winning athlete? I'd like to thank the big guy upstairs. How about the rock star? Jesus is my homeboy. Would it be the Jesus of the health wealth gospel? If you believe it, you will achieve it. Or the self-esteem gospel? Jesus believes in you. In this supermarket of spirituality, you never know which Jesus you'll get. The Apostle John had a vision of Jesus. In Revelation 1, we get a divinely authorized portrait of the true Jesus. This is the divinely authorized portrait of the true Jesus, given to real people in a real place at a real time in history and still in existence for us today. So let's look at this divinely authorized portrait of the true Jesus. And let's correct any bad theology, bad thoughts that we have about the God who is. So listen now to this one like a son of man. It says that he was clothed with a long robe, verse 13, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand... He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So this is the divinely authorized portrait. Uh, this is the sun in glory. We hear words like this about this son of man, this self-designation for deity, in the prophetic book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read that to you now. Daniel 7 9 through 14. Listen for similarities to this book written in the vicinity of the exile, uh, the Babylonian exile of God's people. Here's what it says As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head, like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the, of, that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now verse 13, a little more aptly. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and the glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, without getting into the intricacies of the differences in the prophecy made and the prophecy completed, or without getting into all the bits in the Old Testament that talk of the day in which the Christ would come. It's all the way from Genesis to Malachi. You can see bits of the Old Testament as you read Revelation just woven in, sometimes obviously, sometimes subtly. But just simply to say that this Son in glory was thought to have been a person that all people, nations, and languages would serve from every type of people, nation, and language. And that his kingdom, his dominion, would be forever and ever. This is what is being picked up on in this portrait, this vision given to John as he's taken up higher to see. And in picking up on this, all people, nations, and languages that would serve him. Now let's look back at Revelation 1 and make a few applications. This son in glory, giving us a just standard. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, you're going to see that word again, behold, for you people that like to study the Bible deeply, you're going to see that word again a little bit later in the chapter, behold or do. 
It's in verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive. But look at verse 7 for now. Behold, imperative verb, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes, all social types, all nations, all peoples of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, God's people say, Amen. So be it. Before we can talk about a genuine comforter, we must walk through the path of the sun and glory as a just standard. This isn't some silly thing you're coming to here. God's not to be trifled with. He's ultimate, He's all-powerful, He's almighty, and He is not amused with your chicanery, with your gamesmanships, with your mental one-upsmanships. He is to be worshipped. He's not to be, simply speaking, figured out. He's not to be added on like a condiment on a hamburger to your life. He's the whole thing, or He's nothing. He is so wonderful and magnificent. We, we don't have another picture like this in the Bible so succinctly. This text gives us a portrait of the Son in glory, and He's to be beheld. He's not to be simply figured out, trifled with, joked about. He's not an accessory to your life. He's your everything or He's your nothing. This is the King in glory, but He's also a priest and He's also a prophet. He fulfills that threefold office that we were looking for so wonderfully. And allow now us to see together how. Look at verse 13. In the middle of the churches, in the midst of them, was one like a son of man. Clearly alluding, alluding to Daniel. Revelation 1, 13. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, this is an image of a priest. Anyone thinking about the Old Testament would, would see in their minds conjured up an image of a priestly figure. These are priestly garments, and it's symbolic, but it's real. The Son in glory fulfills a priestly office. He is a shepherd to his people. He cares. But this priest lives to intercede. Look also about the wisdom hairs and the all-seeing eyes and the feet. Listen now to the rest of this. It says, clothed with a long robe and a sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. White wool, snow, like, like wisdom. Like ultimate wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees through everything. Like Numbers 32, 23 says, you can be sure that your sins will find you out. He sees to the center of every single human. There's, he's not to be trifled with. He's not somebody. He's not to be trifled with. He's not somebody that you can play light with. He's serious and he's just and he's a standard. He's holy, but he's wise. He's like a high priest. He is our great high priest who makes intercession not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He is wisdom personified. He is the Proverbs in Job. He, he lives it out. This, this is wisdom personified. He is the wisest king that sees all and always levies just judgments. Always levies just judgments. Who among us can say that we always levy just judgments? We don't perfectly priestly shepherd one another. We don't perfectly kingly judge one another. We don't have perfect insight. The gifts in the body of Christ are dispersed. None of us have them all. We need each other in that way. It says here, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Imagery is replete from the Old Testament. In summary, He's holy. He is a just standard. He's absolutely pure. This priest king is absolutely pure and just in all of his judgments. We've already seen that he's going to judge, right? It's not simply that 
there will be redeemed from every tribe and tongue. It's that there will be wailing from every tribe and tongue. It says in verse 15, His feet were not only like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, but His voice was like the roar of many waters. Like the waters He would have heard on the island of Patmos rushing in on the rocks in that little crescent-shaped island. I imagine like rushing waters, like the voice of multitudes, to put it differently. It, it was a, a penetrating voice, a voice that couldn't be missed. A sun in glory will not be able to be missed. We won't look busy upon His return. And in His right hand, He held seven stars, angels, messengers to the churches. Beware messengers to the churches, myself included. We serve at His good pleasure, and we don't serve without His pleasure. It's in His right hand He held the seven stars, and His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I don't know how you can't think Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to joint and marrow. It lays us open before Him. And His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Revelation ends with the fact that Jesus will be the sun. We won't need a sun. You can't even stare at the sun without getting eye problems, you know? And the brightness of the sun and glory. This is a picture of a prophet. The voice, his mouth, his face, his words ever true, precise. And surely that's the role of any preacher, is to be precise with words. And he commissions those that speak on his behalf to speak Clearly, precisely, whether we're counseling or we're preaching, the Bible says those who ascribe to the office of teacher will be held to a high standard. We must, as I said earlier, make the main things the plain things and the main things the plain things. And as long as you'll have me, I will endure to do it because surely you had to endure some unclear sermons the first 10 years of my ministry. It's true. I've listened to myself. I'm trying to be clearer now. And the main point of every single verse needs to be the main point of what we're talking about. And the main point of every single passage needs to be the main point of every single sermon. That's what we should subscribe to here. It's what we should expect. We want sermons, to put it differently, to be expositional because we don't trust ourselves when we get off on our hobby horses and our tangential rants. We want the points and the illustrations to be drawn from the Word of God because He told John to write and send this Word. And the Spirit carried along those that wrote the other 65 books of the Bible so that you can have a reliable Word. This Son in glory, by His Word, pierces into us like with a sharp sword and reveals what's inside of us. We can hide nothing. How can I illustrate this and apply this for such a broad group of people. What, what are you trying to hide from the sun and glory? What, what is it that you are keeping in the corner of the closet? Not the 99 things that you're glad to bring before Him and show false humility in, but what's the one thing in there that you just will not confess, own up to, and get redressed? What is it? Because just as we go off after the one lost sheep, there's something about going after the one thing in our lives that we think, if we were to bring before the Lord, would be mortifying to us. And yet, as we're going to see, great comfort from the Son and glory comes when we come to Him in absolute trust. You can trust Him. He, he is a just standard. There is nothing His penetrating eyes won't see. He's absolutely holy. You will not be able to trick him, avoid him, look busy. He's coming again. And we either know him as Savior or we know him as judge. But we're all going to see him. Now, this text is symbolic. But it points to something that's very real. And that is the Son. He stands with these prophetic words from Scripture. He gives us this apocalyptic prophecy. He gives us this word that cuts to every joint and marrow. And it says in verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. 
He holds the message. He holds the messengers. And out of his mouth came this sword, this word, his face bright, says in verse 16. Message bearers have a tension to hold. And it's perhaps no better illustrated than in the text itself between verse 16 and 17. Allow me to use a word study as an illustration. It says to begin verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars. And then it says to begin verse 17, when John saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on him. Dexios is the Greek word for hand, right right hand. They, the Greeks only knew a right hand. Dexios. And Dexios is where we get the word for like ambidextrous. Amba meaning both, and dexterous meaning hand, but really right hand. So sorry, lefties. It's all right-handed. And so if, you're, if you were both-handed, you had two right hands. You had two hands that would work. So uh, My dad's left-handed, so he, he always likes to chime in on those jokes. Here's the thing, though. To be both-handed or ambidextrous is to say that you had two strong hands, not just one. Because the assumption was, and the majority of people are right-handed. The Bible is replete with examples of the strength of a right hand setting to the right hand of the throne, the idea of a strong and mighty right hand. We think of the right hand, I think, in terms of, of like um, sport or boxing or war as, as a strong hand, you know, like, like to be clinched. And I think the second point of the sermon in verses 12 to 16 kind of fits that motif. Like absolute strength. We, we don't have any of us, none of us, have a, a fisted, clenched power in our right hand like the sun and glory. And it says that this right hand, which will justly judge everyone, is opened up to hold His people. And actually, when we come to know Him as He is, and we have a visible picture of him. In this case, John has a visible picture of not the humiliated, but the exalted Jesus. And when he has this visible picture, and when we come to know him by his word, we sense not just tough, but tender. You see these two truths in tension? It's not just the sun and glory coming to... Mm. I mean, he can. Do not mess with him. But out of our fear, well, perfect love casts it out, 1 John 4.18 says. Now, there is a way of thinking about this in the church today that's, that's harmful. And it's this. Some of us think that because of grace, we can never thought, talk about the strength of the Son or the judgment coming of the Son. And friends, that's not only cheap, it's an aberration of the gospel. The gospel says that we repent and we believe. It's two sides of the same gospel coin. We have fear and we come to faith. You can testify to this, right? Who among you, when you came to faith in the Lord, wasn't scared that you might go to hell? And then, oh, he touched me. His hand. It's open. It's laid on me. He cares for me. Not a hand to be smacked with, with all the might of the God of the universe, but a hand to be touched by, softly and tenderly. And I want you to know that he's, he's calling you to him if you have ears to hear. And that all that you need to do is that hardest thing for you to do, is to bring whatever you're holding back to him and put your faith in him, to repent of your sin and believe in him that you have eternal life. It's all about Him. You will never arrange the chairs on the naval deck of your life well enough to keep your ship from sinking. You never will. But if you will give the ship of your life to Him, He'll plug the holes, make you new, and take you all the way home. This Son in glory gives you a job, and I think we live in these tensions best about His power and about His love for you 
when we're doing that job, when we're witnessing to Him, when we're in the Word. Because as we walk in the Word and we testify to Jesus, we have to live with His toughness and His tenderness. He's so tender with us. He is. But you know what it says in the Bible as well? How is love expressed? Sometimes the rod of discipline, right? Read Hebrews chapter 12 for a case in point. A father that loves you, disciplines you. We have to extradite so many things from the Bible, including marginalizing this picture of him. It's for our good that he's so strong. It is. It's for our good that he's so strong. And you can rest assured his grace, it's going to get you all the way home. But part of your awarenesses of his grace is just how big he is, how powerful he is, how wonderful he is. And that's what undergirds our testimony to a world that just can't believe it until some of them do. And the Lord promises to redeem some from every single tribe. Let's look afresh at verse 17 through 20, and, or at least through 19, and let's, let's see how to, how to come together around this text today, Lord willing. The Son in glory gives us a general job. He gives us a, a just standard. And He gives us a genuine comfort. When John saw Jesus, he fell at his feet as though dead. And you know, just to pause right there, in the Bible, if it's like an angel, it's not the Lord, if it's not deity, when someone falls, later in Revelation, uh, John will fall and I'll say, get up, don't, don't commit idolatry, I'm an angel, don't worship me, don't worship me, get up. Notice what Jesus doesn't do, as well as what he does do. He doesn't tell him to get up. Notice this son in glory is to be worshipped. To be worshipped by us on every Lord's Day. He's supposed to be worshipped. It's not idolatry to worship him. So in that list that the that that Pastor O'Donnell that I read to you earlier, if if you've misunderstood the Son and Glory, if you've misunderstood what kind of Jesus this is, let verses 12 through 16 shape your view of the Son, okay? Because when you see him for what he is and you realize what you are, unholy. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You get to experience not only His holiness, but His love. Because you fall at His feet again and again. In this case, John paralyzed like dead. And Jesus, metaphorically, if not literally, in the case of John, lays His right hand on you and says, negative particle to fear. Don't fear. Fear not. Fear not. Chris Ashby wrote a whole article this year in this election cycle on fear and not from this verse. It's very good. I just can't read it to you. We don't have time. You look it up. His name's Chris Ashby. Very good article that he wrote. Fear not. Wonderful. This is what the Lord says. Red letters, by the way, if you're interested in such things. I think we make too much of them, but we're going to get into the red letters now in chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus is talking to the churches in the first person. He says, I am. This is how he gives him reasons that he shouldn't be afraid now. And by the way, uh, Pastor Tom Hicks said this out of Louisiana, very apt in his sermon. I want to share it with you. He said that, when he says here, fear not, he's not chastising the timid, conscienced person. He's not going after you. Like, like if, we, if, you're, if you think you're kind of tough in the Lord, and you just tell people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps when they have fear, you're not reading verses like this right. That's not what you're supposed to do. Fear is real. It's part of our right responses to the perils in this world. And it's really part of our right response to the Lord. He doesn't chastise. He just says, fear no more. It's like that verse, 1 John 4, 18 is a great memory verse for the sermon. Perfect love casts out fear. Complete love casts out fear. It throws it out. So fear's there, and then love sort of monsoons it. And that's kind of what's going on here. Like, like truth is there. The standard is there. And you know, love kind of monsoons it. That's kind of what's going on. But it has to be there to, be, to, to really grasp the, the, the grandeur of this affection, of this grace and peace as this letter opens, of this opportunity to serve to talk of your job as a servant. John, a fellow servant. And so he's told, fear not. And then Jesus gives these reasons. He says, I'm the A and the Z, the first and the last. I'm beginning and the end. I'm alive. It's beautiful. Think of this. He says, I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore. I, I, I died, 
I'm alive. I'm never going to die again. He's the, as it says in another place, the firstborn among the resurrection of the dead. This right hand that was defining his toughness is now defining his tenderness with his people. And it says aptly, comfortingly, with a genuine comfort, I have the keys. The keys to what? Of death and Hades. The underworld, the afterlife, the place you go when you die. Here's a question for you. What do you use keys for? You use them right to, to get into your house, don't you? If you forget your keys, you can't start your car, can you? What does a key do? It unlocks a safe, doesn't it? But what is a key? What's the imagery of a key? This kind of imagery is used in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 as well. I give you the keys to the kingdom and the concept of who the Lord is, and the concept of right testimony about the Lord. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever's done on earth, be done in heaven. This type of language is used in the context of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. When covenant members are gathered together to rightly exercise the discipline of the Lord, he says there in that context that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are involved, the authority of the unlocking of the Lord's blessings on earth, his awarenesses comes, his, his, his toughness and his tenderness when God's people are obedient, not to our whimsical nature, but to his divine standard. And he says at the end of that passage in Matthew 18, we're talking about the keys occurs. He says, where two or more gathered like this, I'm there with you. I'm there with you, the Lord says. How can we read this and not think of verses like that that he uttered during his earthly ministry before his humiliation? Now as he utters them in his exaltation, I've got them. All authority has been given to me. It's like a restatement of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. I've got it. I have the keys of death and Hades. And that's why they write and have churches and so on. But I want to kind of meditate there for a moment. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, Doug O'Donnell, a better preacher than I, said this also. He said, about I have the keys of death and Hades, he said there's lots of problems in the world. Corruption, he lists a few. Terrorism, crime, drug abuse, pollution, disease, ethnic tensions, domestic abuse, malnutrition, poor sanitation, utter poverty, slavery, war, lots of problems. But then he says, with an argument from the lesser to the greater, but the biggest problem that we all face in common is death, D-E-A-T-H. That's what our biggest problem is. So you know, a, a wonderful Savior addresses the biggest problem first, death. And he says, I've got the keys. I have got the keys. I have conquered death. I am the key to your eternal life. That biggest problem that we all face in common, Revelation opens with this Son in glory saying, I've got you. You don't have to live in abject fear. I have you. Trust me. Walk with me. Another able commentator, Vern Poitras, whose devotional we have, study guide rather, for the book of Revelation we have for your devotions. Uh, it's free online, but you can pick up a bound copy of it at the Welcome Center if you want to for a small price, whatever binding and combing costs. I think it's $5. But this is free. On, you don't have to buy it. It's free on our Facebook page. We've linked to it. It's a wonderful study guide for you to walk through this series with me. If you read in there, what you're going to see is a quote I'm about to read to you about this. And here's what he says, and he, he's going to quote C.S. Lewis in this, and this is how we'll end the sermon. Uh, he says, John falls down, overwhelmed. Christ is our friend, according to John 15. But he's more than a mere friend. He is awesome in majesty, power, and purity. Too many Christians in our generation have only seen Christ as a buddy, losing sight of his majesty. Revelation gives us a strong, bracing antidote. C.S. Lewis captures something of the untamability of this picture in a famous passage from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which the lion represents the Christ figure. 
Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beavers tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's right, son of man, said Mr. Beaver, bringing his paw down on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. And so you shall. Word has been sent that you are to meet him. Tomorrow, if you can, at the stone table. Christ says to John, do not be afraid. Fear not. And he says to us throughout Revelation, whatever may happen to you, I am who I am. I have the victory. I've given you a job. I've given you a job. And I am a standard justly. But I am also a genuine comforter for your soul. Let us pray. Lord, dear Heavenly Father, I pray you'd help us to apply your word today to our lives in a way that would be pleasing to you and good for us. Humble our hearts. Show us the way. We pray for our missionaries today. We ask that you would be comforting to Bob and Mary Fictinger, to Elizabeth Fox. We ask that you would be comforting to Dave and Pam Wilson. We ask that you would be kingly in your insight to us and your wisdom shared with us for our members meeting tonight. We ask that you would show your toughness to the unbeliever in this room and then sequentially show them your tenderness as you save their soul. By the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.